0: Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Tony. And this is Making It in Asheville.
1: A podcast where the two of us sit down with Asheville natives, locals, livers, makers, doers, shakers, and get to know a little bit about them, what they're doing, and how they're generally making it in Asheville.
0: And in this episode, we are interviewing one of the very first people that we ever met in Asheville. Uh, his name is Derek Harry. He is the chef de cuisine of The Rhubarb, a really great farm-to-table restaurant in downtown.
1: We happened to stop in there on our first trip to Asheville, met Derek uh, because of how incredible one of the entrees were. I had all these questions, and we got introduced to Derek And honestly, he's been just a sweetheart since we were interested in moving here. And then since moving to Asheville and starting this project, we've been dying to have him down to just kind of learn more about his story and learn more about what he's up to here in Asheville, what he has planned for the future.
0: Yep. So we talk all about how he got into the restaurant industry Uh, what it's like being a chef today um, at the restaurant that he works at, as well as some of his top Asheville restaurants and places to eat.
1: Yeah, and that's, I mean, I imagine that's as hard of a thing for a chef to do. Like, obviously, rhubarb was going to be high on his list, but I'm very excited because some of the places he listed, we had not actually heard of before. So we have some more stars on our Google map. Um, A couple of things that stood out for me in the podcast is just like how, I guess seriously, he's taken his work since a very young age. I love that he made a bold move and moved to Alaska, really kind of as like some sort of, I don't know, like Oregon Trail. Like he just kind of did it, lived out there for 10 years. And then also with his wife, Chelsea, kind of just moved back to Asheville to make it happen. And that that was just, I guess, a little over five years ago. And so there's a lot to learn from his story about... Um, I guess being bold and and following your curiosity and your passion, and it, uh, I mean, Derek's a man, so I really loved it.
0: Um, yeah. So without further ado, uh, here is our interview with Derek Harry. I will to take off with a little bit about your background and okay. how you got to where you are today. Um, so I guess if you could start with telling us, how did you get into the restaurant industry? What was kind of uh-huh. that journey?
2: I started out as what they call a swamper, and that means you go in and clean up after the night before. So Fine. there was this local restaurant in town, and I would come in after the night before and uh wash out the garbage cans, mop all the floors, uh dust all the neon lights in the bar and do all that get everything turned on, get the TVs put on.
0: And was this in Asheville or No, this was
2: in, in... St- I, I was like 13. Right. Oh, wow, Peter oh. Minnesota. Okay, wow.
1: So, okay. And we we know that there's at least a stop along this trail that and there's Alaska. Oh yeah. Okay, so we're right now our hero, our hero is in <laughs> Minnesota.
0: 13-year-old Derek. <laughs> uh,
2: and I went from doing that, and then I washed dishes for a while. Uh, I was probably like 14 or 15. Uh, and I remember one night like washing a dish. And this was like pre-dishwashing machine. And I remember feeling a plate for like the fifth time in the night, and, like this chip on the back of a plate. And just knowing that that plate had been in my hands five times, I was like, I don't want to wash dishes no more. So I knew then I didn't want to wash dishes. And then one day I'm in there in the morning and I got done swamping and I'm opening up washing dishes and the brunch cook is hung over and doesn't come in. And the manager comes in the back and he's like, hey, can you cook eggs? And I was like, I can cook eggs. And he's like, do you think you cook a hamburger? I was like, I can cook a hamburger. And boom. So I worked that brunch shift. And like I didn't even know, like a lady came in and ordered poached eggs. The owner's uh, sister, Molly, Molly Mayer, came in and ordered poached eggs, and I'm back there cooking, and, and the ticket comes in, and I I was like, what's up, what's a poached egg, like how, <laughs> how do I, I'm 15 years old, like I don't know, I can do it over easy, <laughs> is that close enough, you want sunny side up, you know, you want a runny yolk or not runny yolk, let's start there, you know, uh, so Molly actually comes in the back, and teaches me how to cook a poached egg, wow. so I learned how to cook a poached egg, and uh, I cooked there, uh, on and off throughout high school, and uh, then went to college in the Twin Cities, and I was DJing, and I was like trying to make a living off of DJing, Mm -hmm. which was really hard, because like one month you might have, you know, 12 gigs, and the next month you might have three. So I was working part-time at a restaurant then, and I had this sort of realization that I could be just as creative as I was musically as I was in the kitchen. Mm -hmm and so I started to focus more on cooking and I would cook and cook and cook and I was uh, less worried about DJing and that was more of like bonus income and stuff at the time and uh, one thing led to another we got evicted from our apartment that's a long story Uh,
0: (laughs) that's another podcast (laughs) (laughs) that's a whole other podcast
2: Uh, and I was like yo I'm not moving back home like what am I going to do And there was the website, this website that I found called coolworks.com. And this was like, you know, I didn't have a computer as a college student. I was going to the computer lab and like hanging out and trying to find stuff. And I found this website and it was all these like seasonal resort jobs. You can go to like Yosemite or you can go here, you can go there. And like a lot of them had housing. So I, did, I was like, I can move to one of these places at least for the summer, make a bunch of money, and I don't have to find a place to live. So I started digging through that. I go to the court. I plead my case to the judge. And I was like, you know, it's not my fault. Like, I lost some roommates. I got my half of the money, and the judge gives me a week to move out of my apartment. So I was like, all right, I got seven days to figure out what I'm going to do. So I apply to all these kitchen jobs up in Alaska. And I'm like, I get a call back. And I look up and like a one-way ticket is like $316. I'm like, cool, I can swing that. They don't need me for like three weeks, but I have a week to get out of my apartment and then another two weeks kill. So I was like, all right, I'm not going to tell my parents just yet. I'm going to get my stuff together. And then like, I'm going to tell mom and dad, all right, like I'm moving to Alaska and I go home. I spend two weeks at home and I'm out. So that's what happened. And I (laughs) went up there on like, a seven or eight month contract because it's a lot of seasonal employment. So your contract was from like May 16th to September 15th. And if you stay the whole time, you get a bonus, you know, and it was $5 a day for housing and they took it out of your check pre-tax. And like, ideally if you looked at your bonus, you would get all your housing money back plus some Mm -hmm. if you stayed the whole time. So I was like, this is easy, man. I got this. So I fly up to Alaska, and uh, I've pretty much been cooking ever since. Wow. The first restaurant I I went to up there, I was only there for like two weeks. But I met this other cook at a bar, and they, put, they did what they call poaching, and they mm-hmm. poached me. Oh, so like, like with the eggs. I
0: know. I'm like, there's, there's a theme, a poaching there's a theme, theme. Yeah, <laughs> so I was
2: poached by this uh, other restaurant. I just remember I had, heat. like, prepped. I was hired as a prep cook, which I thought was BS, because I was like, I can cook this menu. Like, this is stupid. Yeah. flying up here to be a uh, prep cook. I was like, but I'm going to be in Alaska. Like, whatever. I'll work short shifts and just go hang out. But I was, like, miserable about, like, yeah. week two. So I met this other chef and she was like, yo, you should come work for us. We're short a couple cooks. I remember waking up one day and I go into the restaurant and I have prepped everything because we have like no customers yet. Taurus ain't there. So there's like nothing for me to do. And they're like, well, you know, you can go back. And like the next day I woke up and I was like, I'm not doing this again. And I called the other chef and I was like, hey, you still got that job? And they were like, yeah, when can you be here? I was like, when can you come pick me up? Wow. And they were like, yeah. you're working a night. And so I called. So
0: what was the other job that you we were going <coughs> it was to?
2: Little, uh, the other job was a bigger resort.
0: And it was a prep cook position or no? It was, it was a, a line cook position. Line cook. Got it.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went in, quit. I was like, can I get my check? Can I get my money for my hours I worked? You know, I got my money. Chef showed up. Pulled, like... through my record bag because I brought my records with me because I need my records in Alaska you know for sure uh through my record bag and my hiking pack in the car he looked at me like I'm crazy goes you brought your records with you and I was like yeah like I'm not leaving this shit at my parents house you know (laughs) uh who knows what my dad will do with it he'll throw it away when I leave or something uh and got in his car and it was a wrap like I worked that that chef uh Eric Slater I still very much consider to be my mentor to this day. Like I can call him uh, with any questions or problems yeah. or guidance in the yeah. restaurant industry, and, and he's gonna he's gonna stop what he's doing and talk to me. So, yeah. like
1: this this better resort. Like, are we talking, like, what types of what types of dining? Like so yeah, how big to, is this resort? You this know?
2: resort was like so. My first season there, because I did multiple seasons there, right. uh, was like I think they had six buildings each building had no they had 10 buildings the first year i think it was and each building had like eight rooms each okay so you would have like about a hundred plus people on at night plus local business uh there was a bar and a fine dining restaurant cool all came out of the same kitchen uh and it was just bigger and nicer yeah like there was, there was obvious that there was more opportunity is this there. This
1: is Anchorage, like no, I this don't is know. Seward, Alaska. Seward.
2: Yeah. So this is down on the Kenai Peninsula, about three and a half hours south of Anchorage.
1: And what's it like? How? Like I've never heard that town before. Yeah. Who, who was going there? Like Northwestern
2: American. Oh, every uh, any anybody on a cruise ship, anybody on the train. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seward is definitely so. It's like Anchorage, Seward, Talkeetna, Skagway. Juneau, to some extent, um, those are like the big. If mm-hmm. you're on a cruise ship, you're going to hit Skagway and Juneau. If you're not, if you're just like flying in, you're definitely hitting Seward. You might hit uh, Talkeetna. Depends on if you're doing like the Princess bus and taking that between their resorts. Princess is a cruise line. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are like the big tour cities. It's, uh, Anchorage and Seward are both ocean cities, but Seward's southwest. So it's a little bit nicer weather. Um, and it's like. A tiny town plop down right on the ocean. Mm-hmm. Just beautiful. Yeah.
0: Wow, crazy.
2: Absolutely gorgeous.
0: So it seems like, too, you went from kind of cooking at, you know, cooking eggs and hamburgers uh-huh. and maybe a few poached eggs. Right. To something a little bit more sophisticated at a resort. Like, do you remember that transition of, oh my God, I'm cooking something? I mean, the transition to more
2: sophisticated food definitely happened in Minneapolis for me. Ah, Um, okay. And that's why going up to Seward as a prep cook was kind of like these guys are cooking burgers and wings. Like I can't do this. It was downgrade for you. It was like a Mm -hmm. downgrade for me. But then this new resort was like, man, they're doing twelve-week-aged ribeyes. You know, they're doing cool stuff. I mean, and this was you know two thousand and four, two thousand and five. And everything they were doing, the chef was young at the time. Eric was young, so he was on. He was very up on food trends. And all the stuff they were doing was just exciting and very cool. And uh, Asian influence was a big thing at that time, yeah. mm, you know? The yeah. Asian fusion boom was mm-hmm. right around the early mm-hmm. 2000s. So there was, like, that little bit of Asian stuff that I was really into. And, like, I was like, I can cook here. Yeah. This is some stuff I want to do. So,
1: so th- still, that's 15 years ago. Yeah. So you don't seem... You seem. Were you just like just out of high school?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I was like. I dropped out of college after the first year.
1: Okay, so you're not twenty yet, and you're in Alaska.
2: Okay. I had just turned twenty-one. Cool, that was what it was. Uh, yeah, I would just turn 21, because I had my twenty-first birthday in St. Paul, so I just it was probably wow. six months after I turned twenty-one. It's crazy.
0: So, what was the? Like do you was there like a specific dish that you remember either eating or cooking for the first time that you were like okay yes I want to know more about this I want to cook more I want to be a chef because of this I mean
2: when I decided to to, to pursue cooking more than music it, that was the moment I want to be the best like I at everything I'm okay with success I'm okay with failure being in the middle sucks you can't learn from the middle. In the middle, it's like, okay, we're getting by, like, but it's hard to identify what's wrong. But when you're succeeding, mm-hmm. it's really easy to identify what's working and what isn't. And when you fail, it's really easy to identify what's not working. Yeah. And those are two great places to be. So I just like, I was in on cooking at that point.
0: So it was more like, I'm really good at this. Let me go all in. Yeah, and then
2: when I got done with my first season at... The Windsong Lodge in Seward, I knew I didn't want to leave Alaska. Yeah. I was like, this is, this place is too much. People, people scrimp and save and all year long or for years to try and come here and I'm living in this. Mm-hmm. And getting paid, you know. So I went back to Anchorage and I was like, I'm staying. I'm not going to go back. Everybody's like, oh, the winter's going to be horrible. I'm from, I grew up in Minnesota. Like, how no it's not it I can do this like this isn't that bad I've looked I've right. looked online you know it's, it's gonna be fine there's mountains here so there's no wind chill you know in yeah. Minnesota when the corn comes down the wind blows through and it's like it's zero degrees with a negative 30 degree wind chill oh my goodness and we still had school you know so I was like <laughs> Anchorage is gonna be fine we're gonna be cool and
1: was it fine was it yeah cool? <laughs> okay. I mean
2: I stayed <laughs> for a decade you know like yeah. I didn't leave Alaska um, I was there for five years before I left wow before I like like, went all. and visited people. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. I didn't, I didn't leave. And I went into Anchorage, and I just went around and ate food and started looking at menus. And I went to this place called Sax Cafe. And Sax Cafe was like my kickoff to becoming a, a, a better chef. Hmm. And it was definitely a job that I applied for above my head. And because of Eric from The Wind Song, I got the job. Um, I remember interviewing, and I had a mohawk at the time, like a big mohawk, and I like didn't put it up, and I like combed it to the side, <laughs> so I looked all like, you That's
0: know, how you knew he was normal,
2: serious. You know, uh, um, and I went in for the interview, and it was like, you know, they were going to bring me on as a prep cook, and they were like, and we can get you trained, and I was like, all right, cool, like I can do this, um, and they called Eric as my reference, and Eric told them, you can have him, but he's mine in May. And because he said that, Joanne Asher gave me that job at Sax Cafe. And Saks is like, Sax is legendary fine dining. It's closed now because Joanne retired. She owned several restaurants by the time she retired. But she brought, you know, fine dining and California cuisine to Alaska. Her and I believe the Marx Brothers were like the two first restaurants. And at 21, to be working at Saks as a chef in town, like other chefs knew that I, like it was like a, like I could say I worked at Saks, and people were like, "Oh, cool! Like this guy can cook." Wow! And it was like culinary school for me. I'll never ever forget it. I was my first day. I walked in, and they're like, "You know, this is Jeff. This is the guy you're training with." And I was like, "Cool!" And I was like, "Hi, I'm Derek." You know, and I blah, blah blah blah. We do the introductions. He's like. Uh, he goes, can you, make, can you make chutney? And I was like, yeah, I can make a chutney. He's like, all right, I need a chutney for pork. I was like, cool, where's the recipe book? And he looked at me, he goes, I need no recipe book. Make it look good, make it taste good. And I was just like, uh, I remember just being like scared shitless. <laughs> I'm like, fuck, like I can, I can just cook whatever I want. And like going to the dry storage area and just being so overwhelmed. And it became this... An episode of like, I was gonna say, it's like <laughs> it's a, a cooking nev- show where yeah. they, you know,
0: you get, gotta go get your ingredients and uh,
2: I would, make it. Uh, I would take my. So we didn't do like family meal like a lot of restaurants do because uh, the restaurant was small, so they would just sort of like cook up stuff for each. Like maybe one night somebody would make spaghetti or, or like a lot of times what happens is everybody cooked for themselves. Mm-hmm. Really. And like I wanted to get better at doing stuff at, on the line, so I could switch from being a prep cook to a line cook. So I started taking home raw ingredients. And learning to cook them at home, like I learned how to cook scallops at home because Mm -hmm. of that. Like I learned how to sear and render duck breasts, both both dishes off saute because I wanted to work saute because that was the cool station. And like I, I taught myself how to make risotto at home by doing that. And I would just pack up all my ingredients raw, and I would take them home, and it'd be like 11:30 at night, and I'd be in the kitchen cooking up scallops or duck breasts or like. And,
0: and would you follow recipes? Would you like go through cookbooks or Yeah, go Joanne had
2: this like l- food cookbook library and it was amazing. She was always like, you know, you could take them, just bring them back. Mm-hmm. She had a subscription to like Savour and Food and Wine and like, you know, so I would just be like, I would come into work early and I would uh, A lot of times I would like get my prep list and I would take it over to this pizza place. And it was like a beer, like a pint and a slice of pizza for like five bucks. And I would do that for lunch and I'd sit down. I'll look at my prep list and like triage it. I need to start here to get to here. So I finish in time, you know, and mm-hmm. like, and then I would go into work like two hours early and just start working.
1: Wow. That's exactly, there's a book. I don't know what it's called now. It changed its title, but it was called work clean and it was all about like mezen plots and how uh, if you if we all lived a little bit like chefs live specifically around a kitchen uh the the world would be a better place but your life would be a, a lot better like there's something to be said about like here's my to-do list here's the order of operations to get it done here's how the timing and cadence needs to be here's the process there's all these standard operating procedures and so that started you would say at this pax
2: experience Sax, uh, Sax cafe Saks. um yeah definitely i mean i just you know notebooks on notebooks on notebooks just recipes or like lists from yeah. the day before and like i make my cooks everybody carry notebooks every time a cook is unorganized i can tell they don't have a cookbook yeah or, or not a cookbook a notebook where's your notebook where's your list what are you doing what are you working on next what can you get started next while you're working on this we work on a constant deadline. There, there are few other jobs that work on deadlines as often as cooks do. Yeah, everything's a deadline. From the time an order comes in to the time it leaves your kitchen, your window, you're on a deadline.
1: And do you have it down to like this is a seven minute meal? Like this happens in thirteen minutes. This is
2: yeah. You know, we have ticket times that we try to per, try to achieve. Um, you know, certain dishes will always cook quicker than others. Yeah. But I mean. I, I really don't want tickets to take more than 15 minutes to come out of the kitchen. I mean, 15 to 20 is the hot zone. We don't yeah. not want a ticket to take 20 minutes, yeah. period.
1: And you do some whole, like, chick- like there's some bigger plates, but it's Yeah, still- we have a
2: half-roasted chicken, but those get par-cooked. To, like We grill those and bring them partway up to temperature with a little bit of stock before a mm-hmm. service. Um, so we only do a certain amount of chickens per night. Got it. You know, yeah. for that reason. You come into the restaurant at you know nine o'clock on a Thursday night, you might not get a chicken. Yeah That's okay.
1: Yeah, for sure.
2: you know. We have other great things on the menu there.
1: I'd rather a restaurant run out of food and say, "Oh, you know what, you missed the scallops tonight than always have scallops. Right or you <laughs> like the, that's to right. be the best of something, right. Yeah, it's like, hey, no, yeah, we buy. And sometimes
2: if you come in after 9 o'clock and you really want that chicken, we'll be like, okay, I'll make you that chicken, but I need you to know beforehand that it's going to take 20, 25 minutes. Yeah. I just need you to know, and we'll cook it for you. But we do that par and holding so that we can make sure to give the guests the best experience. Right.
1: Rad. And so then when you, like I had that open kind of thought when you were saying that you transition from music to food and there's this idea that I want to be the best at it. When you thought of best 10 years ago, right, was that speed? Was it precision? Everything. Was it flavor? How do you, like, All so that. how do you start to quantify that? And how do you say, what, I break
2: down a case of chickens, 12 chickens in under six minutes. And I'll race anybody that wants to come race me.
0: Yeah, if you follow uh, if you follow Derek on Instagram, there's like a weekly like chicken breakdown race that I've seen.
2: (laughs) You know, I butchered and you know, it's it's just about being more efficient and how like my time's worth money at the end of the day, period. And I value that and so I want to get the most out of my time. And so that's how I start to break like you. It's important to know when to walk away from things. Flavor wise. Sometimes a dish don't work. Yeah. You try a dish three times and you can't get those flavors right. you got to walk away because it's not worth your time right now. And maybe you come back to it because you need to work on other dishes for a while and get a fresh perspective. And maybe something you work on on that dish or a new dish changes your perspective on how to fix that original dish that you started. Yeah. You know, I don't think first attempts make the menu. Right. Not often. You know? Well, make something, eat it, all right, this needs acid, this needs salt, this needs this needs something more unctuous to it, you know? And so you try it again, and you work it again until you get it right, and then it goes on the menu. But yeah, I, I, I mean, I want to be Top Chef, I want my own restaurant, I want a James Beard Award. Mm. Though I guess those are some things that I, I mean...
1: Those are mile markers.
2: Those are mile. I mean, I think Top Chef is a big springboard for a lot of chefs. That it's hard to get money to start a business, mm. and people that don't win Top Chef wind up with backers, and they get enough exposure to have that opportunity to start doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. And I want to do my own thing. And I think Top Chef is, is one of those ways that I could get there. So mm-hmm. I, I've applied several times. I will apply again this year, mm-hmm. uh, waiting on the release date for when uh, applications are supposed to come in this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to get on there, and I want to get on there, and I want to win, you know?
0: That's awesome. Yeah. So back About up that. a little bit. I want to know a little bit more about how you came to Asheville and, and how you fell into... No, not fell into, but, but why Rhubarb? Why John Slayer? Uh,
2: Okay, so...
1: I know it involves a van. It We've does involve van.
2: a van. <laughs> it involves the best van. Uh... Vincent Van Gogh, yeah. That's uh, the name of your That's van. the name of the van. That's a great van. Uh, <laughs> so Vincent Van Gogh was purchased as a fishing vehicle. I'm a fly fisherman. I love to fish. Uh, we lived in Alaska for a long time, and we spent most of our weekends in the outdoors. So Vincent Van Gogh was purchased because we could sleep in it, we could leave it loaded, and we'd come home from work in a busy weekend, hop in Vincent, and drive off. And that's why it was purchased. Um, and then... We went to my brother-in-law's wedding in uh, Portland uh, this was about a year after we had been married and
0: uh, that's Portland Oregon
2: Portland Oregon okay. yep and we got to hang out with the extended fam and cousins and stuff like that and uh, we had an amazing time and it came to the end and it was really bittersweet and to live in such beauty comes with sacrifices. Um, it's a $1,000 for a good plane ticket to get out of Alaska round trip.
1: Yeah, I was surprised when you said it was $316 or something. I mean, something but that was in there. 2004, yeah. you know?
2: I mean, that was a real long time ago. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can get an $800, like, sale ticket, and that's, like, a come up. Like, you yeah. did good on an yeah. $800 ticket to fly out of Alaska. Yeah. And my wife and I want to have a couple kids. So you start thinking, all right, you know, I'm going to get two vacations a year. We have two kids. We get good ticket prices. We're looking at $3,200 every time we want to fly out. If we stay in Alaska, those two vacations are almost almost going to be, you know, to Tampa, Florida to see one in-laws and to Minnesota to see another. Even even if we did every other every other year, you know, you're still going back home always to visit on your two weeks of vacation. Um, which is tough. And that's a lot of money. That's 6400 $6, dollars a year to travel out of the state without hotels, without, you know, anything else. Um and then it's like, do I really want to spend all my vacations going back to places I've been? And for me it's a no. Um And not that I don't love my family, not that I don't love my in-laws, not none of that. But, I mean, I'd rather take a three-day weekend and drive down for Thanksgiving and see you. And I'd rather have you come up for a three-day weekend and come see me um, than me take a week off of work and go back to Tampa and spend a week in Tampa. Or go back to Minnesota and spend a week in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Like, we got to go to D.C. and pal around for... uh, a week this year. That was the first vacation in three years that we have not taken to scene family. Period. But, you know, 34 years old, I want to take some vacations. I've never been overseas. I'd like to do that. I'd never been to Washington, D.C. And I was blown away by some of that stuff there. Yeah. Like, it was, it's, it's phenomenal. It's amazing. We have a crazy culture in American history that I think most people don't know about because they haven't made that trip. You know, I really like this book and show called The Man in the Iron Castle. Mm. Uh, It's about if the Allies had won the war Mm. and the U.S. is split between the Japanese and the Nazis. Yeah. And there's this reclamation part where they go through and they get rid of, like, the Liberty Bell. And, like, and I remember reading reading that and watching it and, and, and being like, do we really have, you know, that much stuff? that you would it would it would be that big of a thing to get rid of it and then I went to DC and I was just like the Lincoln Memorial blew me away. Oh yeah. The Lincoln Memorial is mind-blowing. And they have that block where Martin Luther King stood and gave a speech and like you can stand there and look out and like you've seen those pictures and you're like oh my god that's so many people. But when you stand there in that spot and look out it's way more people than I thought. Like, I've been to Mount Rushmore, and that was disappointing. Mm-hmm. Crazy Horse, super cool. Mount Rushmore, no. But standing where Martin Luther King stood and looking out and realizing that that was, prob- there was probably, you know, five or six of the towns I grew up in worth of people standing out there when he gave that speech. Yeah. That's crazy to think about.
0: Yeah.
2: So, D.C. was awesome. D.C. was trip. awesome. Yeah.
1: And so you were going to rewind and say you're in Portland at something like that. Oh, we were in
2: Portland at the wedding, and we were just like, you know, we need to be able to see family more. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have a passport at the time, so we planned on me flying to Minnesota, see my family. My wife was going to drive her car with the dog and the cat, meet us there. Because you have to cut through Canada. Right. And then we were going to sort of store some stuff at my parents' place. With the dog and cat chilling, we were going to drive around and try and figure out where we wanted to go. And then two weeks before we left, my wife got rear-ended and they totaled her car. Mm. And all we got is Vincent Van Gogh. And I was yeah, going to
0: say, is Vincent okay? Yeah. Vincent's okay. It's <laughs> my wife's Jetta.
2: You know, we had planned on selling Vincent. Because uh, it was the RV. It was the camping vehicle. Right. Someone else should have made it their camping vehicle. Uh, and insurance is not going to issue you a check in two weeks. Yeah. No. They got to, you know, go through all their bureaucracy mm-hmm. and all that stuff. I mean, she was parked. A guy rear-ended her while she was parked because he thought the light was green. I remember going to where she was, make sure she was okay. And I looked at it and I was like, babe, your car is totaled. She's like, don't say that. And I was like, I'm just telling you like right now. And I'm watching the guy on his thing. And I'm right. like, <laughs> and It goes to the red. Like, man, what are we going to do? My wife doesn't drive a stick. I don't have a passport. I've got a ticket to fly out. So we call and change my ticket to go to Seattle because Seattle is one of six or seven places in the US where you can get a passport in a day. Yeah. So I fly down. The other one's New York. (laughs) I
1: I, I know this. I know this well. Yeah. (laughs) Continue.
2: So I fly down, get my passport, fly back up. I take Vincent to the, the VW place. I'm like, Make it as roadworthy as possible. Yeah. It's got to get us to wherever we're going to go. Yeah. So they, like, do a bunch of work on it. Give me a bunch of extra little parts. I've got, like, a fuel pump. You know, I've got all these, like, little things in case something should go wrong. And two weeks later, we drive out of Alaska.
1: And you threw a dart and it hit Asheville?
2: It did. We had spent... Well, we stayed for that month uh, after the wedding. We came up and hung out in Nashville. This is where... My wife's best friend got married because they both they went to school here. My wife went to school in Brevard. Ah. Um, so we came up and hung out, and I was like this place is pretty chill. Like I could live here. It's close enough that we can drive to see either family, mm-hmm. but it's also far enough away that no one's <laughs> popping in on you. <laughs> That's no,
0: exactly where we're at. <laughs> there ain't no, I was in the
2: neighborhood. There was none of right. that, yeah. you know, yeah. I want to lounge in my underwear sometimes when I get home and I don't want you just stopping by, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> so you know, you know, let me know. So yeah. we chose Asheville. Uh, I was in love with Southern food. Um, I was not cooking at this point, I was helping run the business, and I had left cooking at that point because I had quit drinking, so mm-hmm. I spent about three years outside of the kitchen um, and we decided to drive back and I knew I wanted to cook southern food or southern ish food, and uh we decided that when we moved back like i was gonna I was gonna step back in the kitchen mm-hmm.
1: and so it seems like. Then you didn't necessarily have anything buttoned up or lined up for when you would arrive in Asheville.
2: I, t- I started cooking pizza when I got here.
1: At just like Johnny's Pizza Spot? Blue
2: Mountain Pizza out mm-hmm. uh, in Weaverville. Um, I was like, you know, I didn't want to like jump into a big kitchen right away. Mm-hmm. It was down the street and I was like, this is not going to be like, it's a pizza spot. Some low stakes. Yeah, I mean, not just, I mean, not necessarily that, but just like, it's not going to be a yes chef no chef it's not going to be mm-hmm. and I, and like I, I you know you don't know if you can still do what you did mm. you know 3 years is a long time to take away from a craft yeah and i mean i definitely cooked way more at home when i was not cooking yeah. professionally uh, so it's not like i just never cooked food but i was not doing it on an everyday basis you know and so i wanted to make sure i still had it and i went in and worked at blue mountain pizza and just, it was fine, mm-hmm. you know, no problems. After uh, you know, two weeks of being there, I was one of like three people that could work the oven mm-hmm. in the whole restaurant. Uh, that lasted for a while, and I just wasn't happy, it wasn't enough, I, I got bored. There was no like, what's next at the pizza place? Mm-hmm. You know? I'm gonna make pizzas, yeah. and I'm gonna make more pizzas, and I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna come back and do it again. Uh, So I left there and went and worked at the Golden Fleece for a while, which Mm -hmm. is a Mediterranean restaurant. I was the sous chef there. Um, And then that was not what I wanted. So I left there, and I went and staged for a while. Uh, Fancy word for... Working for free. Working for free. Yeah. (laughs) It's a fancy word for working for free. Um, So I went and ate around Asheville, and I picked a few places that I liked the food a lot. And then I went and stage there to figure out which one I wanted to work at. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I knew when I ate the meal, that rhubarb was that one, Mm -hmm. but I still had another stage lined up. I had like a two week long stage out in Kinston lined up. Do you remember
0: what you ate at the rhubarb?
2: Uh, the Bavette steak and the nudie Mm. hands down. And I am, I am, I'm very hard on my cooks about the nudie because of that. The nudie is the reason that I stayed there. And so when the nudie comes out, when we make the nudie, I I try to make sure that my cooks take the utmost care. Not that we don't do that with everything, but I think I'm a little harder on that dish just because I know what it means for me. And I remember eating it and being like, Mm -hmm. I got to learn how to make this. I need to work here. This is what I need to do. This is where I need to be. So...
1: Well, we've had both, and they're fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: they're yeah, both yeah.
2: Good. So,
0: and I, and and not for nothing. I mean, I'm not probably not as hard of a judge as you are, but coming from New York and then having lived in Italy and loving food, like we were just blown away when we yeah. ate at the rhubarb. But yeah,
1: at almost anything will get a free pass for me. You need to do something pretty wrong to your food yeah. for me not to be like, yeah, it's good. Like I'd eat it again, whereas like Sarah will take a bite, you can see that she's analyzing flavor and knows that that's cardamom or something. Like to me, it's like ooh, tasty. One another, right? And for her, (laughs) so so when she goes, oh my god, about a bite of food, it means a lot more than when I say, oh my god, about a bite of food. In my opinion, at least, Uh, and we found ourselves saying, oh my god. Like there was a salad that I thought was going to be a punt and it wasn't a punt. There was so many things that just had, um,
0: like a uh, nuanced flavor, like a certain complexity that you just don't get at other places. I felt like, yeah. So, I mean, how, so that's interesting. You were talking about nudie and Cape of Ed steak, and then you love Southern food and you really wanted to cook Southern food. How would you describe your cooking style? today. Like if you were like oh, this is. I have
2: a term for this. Oh. Storner cuisine. That's what I want to cook. I want to cook approachable food that people want to eat when they might be a little drunk or stoned. Cool. I mean that's what I want to cook. And I have to dress my food up a bit to be, to be rhubarb standards but yeah. that's what right. I want to cook.
0: So give me some examples like of dishes that you've cooked. I, I think our,
2: our lunch menu is a great example of that. Like we did a country fried Bami where we pound out a steak and we chicken fry it. Um, and then it's got sauce, which is Eastern North Carolina head cheese instead of chicken pate and then deviled ham on top of it with pickles. It's a complex dish. There's a lot of flavors going <laughs> right. on, but like if you came in after drinking all night, you would be like, I want to eat that as well.
1: Put that in my belly. I don't yeah. know who you are. I'm eating you too. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and so do you have specific cookbooks or chefs that have been inspirations for you? Um, I try to take
2: inspiration from all over, not just chefs, you know? Uh, I've always said my goal is to be a Renaissance man, not a chef. I Don't want to just cook food. I don't want to be known as a chef. Like I don't want to, I don't want to be pigeonholed. I don't think that's fair. You know, um, I'm more than what I do for a living. And like, it, it might be a big part about what defines me, but it's not me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I look up, I mean, I came up in the early 2000s. So David Chang <laughs> is, is definitely one, um, I would love to own a ramen restaurant one day. I would love to do, like, Southern-style ramen, you know?
0: Let's Ooh. do some fried chicken.
2: Let's do some barbecue ribs in ramen. Like, let's put collard greens in ramen, you know?
0: That is, like, you just answered my dreams.
2: You know? I mean...
0: <laughs> Seriously. Wait, I, I discovered ramen, like, good ramen in New York when I moved oh, there. there's so much good ramen. It, there's so much good ramen. And I, like, you're just not... I don't know. I had lived in Italy for a long time, so there was no ramen. There was just pasta. Moving to New York, I was like, oh my God, ramen, this is amazing. I mean, I only had like the instant ramen noodles and I love Southern food. So make that happen. Uh Yeah. (laughs) Um,
2: you know, uh, other chefs, I guess would be, um, Dan Barber. Uh, um, everything he does is amazing. Uh, It's a lot fancier than what i want to cook but i love what he's doing for the craft Mm -hmm. um in the early 2000s i was really into a chef named laurent gras who owned l2o who was the kind of so alinea and Mm -hmm. moto got a lot of press u.s wise doing molecular food and i think for me by and far laurent gras was doing it better his restaurants aren't open anymore um you know, it was. It's hard to do that that small restaurant thing with such high end food and make money. Um, you know, Noma doesn't make money. You know, Noma does amazing things, but if you don't buy the wine tasting menu, wine with the menu when you go, Noma doesn't make any money off of you. They've said this; it's in the press. Like, and I don't drink, so is it okay for me to go to Noma and eat so that they don't make money and know that they have thirty people working for free in the back? Like, to me. Uh, Those people that really put it out there are amazing, and and that's what I think uh, is so awesome about Noma. But I also really love those chefs like David Chang, like Thomas Keller, um, Danny Meyer, people that are building empires and taking care of people. Uh, Emeril Lagasse. Emeril Lagasse is is a god. I remember watching Emeril on TV as a kid, and, Mm -hmm. you know... Emerald wrote personal checks out of his checkbook to take care of people that were displaced after the hurricane. He put them up in hotels, gave those he could jobs at his other restaurants, and then took care of the rest of people. Those are the guys that I look up to. I mean, that's the stuff that if I ever own a restaurant and be a restaurateur, I want to be able to do that. John Fleer does that. I've yeah. seen that man go out of his way to help people more, more than sometimes I think he should. You know, and and I'm sure that people said the same thing about Emeril when he was doing all that uh, that stuff after the hurricane. You know, Um, but those are the people that I I look at, and that's what I want to be. I want to. I I like that side of things where they're cooking amazing food, but they're still expanding as a business. Right. Cooking is a business, and we have to be able to pay our people a living wage. We have to give them a good life, and we have to take care of them. Otherwise, we are going to be in this hole that we're in right now where we can't find skilled workers.
0: Yeah. So that, that is an interesting... You're talking about taking care of people and making sure you have enough money. Do you have an opinion on tipping systems in the yeah. restaurant industry?
2: Um, you know, it's been tried. Danny Meyer tried it, uh, tried to go with no tipping. Um, I think it would be hard for the restaurant industry to run. Prices have to go up. There's no way you know servers make two twenty four an hour right now okay. in North Carolina plus That's their tips, crazy, uh, and that I, I know of them making less in other states. You know, um, and we don't, I mean yeah. they make good money. Don't get me wrong, but I think that you could see a change in service. I think that there could be a lot of good things that could happen without it. Um, it didn't work for Danny Meyer and. Danny Meyer owns a lot of restaurants and if that guy couldn't make it work then you know I don't know um I don't know that I'm in a position to give a good opinion on that Mm -hmm. um I'm all for people having a more secure uh secure life you know and having that reassurance of a paycheck I mean a server is going to make more money than me during the summertime for sure but in the wintertime I'm probably going to make more money than a server and that's just me guessing mm-hmm. off what these people are taking home but mm-hmm. you know yeah. servers in a good restaurant can make a really good living bartenders can make a really really good living um but some people don't tip and that's kind of it's kind of kind of stupid um if you come in where someone's going to take care of you and wait on you i i feel like that that's something that you should tip on yeah you know We're talking a lot about quality of life in the, Mm -hmm. in the restaurant industry and quality of life comes from benefits, time away and compensation. Yeah. If all of that stuff becomes bigger things, the prices on your food has to go up. Yeah. Prices on your alcohol has to go up, you know, all that stuff. Um, and people want to eat out. I mean, eating out and people want to eat good food is more and more of a thing, Um, and we'll spend thousands of dollars on other things, but some people don't want to spend that much on food and I just don't get it. Yeah. I like cheap food too. Like, I mean, I love, I love cheap food. I mean, I think that's my, usually when I go to a town, I mean, when we came out of Atlanta, we ate at the Buford highway, highway farmer's market on our way out of town, you know, we (laughs) ate, we ate dumplings, bulgogi and sushi out the back of our car.
1: It was live it's on good Instagram. good food. Loved it was it. really
2: good food. You know, you can eat good food out of the back of a car and you can eat good food in a fancy restaurant. Mm-hmm. You just got to find it. And if you want to go eat in a fancy restaurant, you're going to have to pay for it. Yeah.
0: Well, and it's, I think really it's I mean, A, yes, it is the, the food itself is probably a little bit more curated and well, not necessarily actually, I take that back, but you're paying for the service. Yeah. Right. Sure. You're paying for someone to wait on you and give you that extra. Kind and cook of a meal
2: instantly. You know, on demand. On demand. <laughs> yeah. You're coming in and saying, I want pork tonight. And that pork is not sitting, I mean, it's not like a meat and three. Have you all been to a meat and three yet since you've been a in Meat and three sides? No. Yeah. It's not like a meat and three. And meat and threes are good and they're delicious, but that's going to be quicker and it's going to be cheaper, you know? Yeah. But when you come into a restaurant and sit down, that, that pork, that chicken, that stuff, you know, is being dealt with and prepared to give it to you at its utmost yeah. peak, you
1: know? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a really interesting like uh, continuum of optionality, right? So the more options you have, the less expensive each option should be, and the more control the diner has over what they're eating, when they're eating, and how they have it prepared. To the other extreme, which is you sit down, you're having a price-fixed menu uh, of the chef's liking. And you know you do not get to make substitutions. Um, and almost always, that has an increased price. And I find restaurants fascinating for that reason because sometimes I want to go to a cheesecake factory and have a million options and be like, "Fuck, I can't do that."
2: Right? I can't. It's so overwhelming.
1: Exactly. (laughs) So, but that's a diner, right? Like it's a diner with 17 pages. I don't know. And sometimes I like it's a
2: diner and they got one sheet. Boom, boom. Get this (laughs) thing. You can get that thing. Like that's one. When I go to a restaurant and they give me multiple sheets to look through, and it's not like here's your menu, here's the your wine list. list. Yeah, I'm talking about four pages to, to what I can order. I don't know, man. Yeah,
1: and it gives me. I'm pause. scared. It like, how pause? can you make all that good? And how how does it all stay fresh? And where right. is it
2: in the freezer
1: or fridge? Right. Like, how are you having this much depth? And how much waste is built into the model? And that's why one of my f- favorite restaurants I ever went to was in Tuscaloosa. And I think it was called Five. And there were five menu items and five drinks. And I thought, oh, man, that's cool. And they change enough that you would want to keep going back to see what the next five are.
2: But I think the, I think the menu problem is a problem of America. Yes. Wholeheartedly. Yeah. Overseas, these guys make something. I make udon. I make ravioli. I'm a butcher. Right. I do this stuff, and this is what I do, and I do it really well. And I... I've always said that like that'd be my dream like I could make ramen forever and you can make ramen a hundred different ways but I I could make ramen forever
1: how's ramen different than pizza
2: for me Mm -hmm. I can't eat that much acid and I don't find pizza as satisfying umami yeah and I just think that there's I think I think soup's really relatable at the end of the day yeah. Soup and noodles is really relatable. Pizza is like. Pizza's really opinionated. You know?
1: We're on the quest for a decent, you know, out, by our standards, pizza so far. We haven't tried it. Yeah, many.
0: we're in Asheville. Like, I mean, so I love like Neapolitan.
2: Brick oven, 90 Brick oven seconds. pizza. Cucina 24.
0: Okay. That's what I thought. That's we went we there and we had a meal and we didn't order the pizza. We ordered pasta, pizza. but we saw making we saw them making pizza and I was like
2: That might be it. They're do- they're doing it really well. Um, Cucina 24 for that style and if you're looking for like good pepperoni pizza, I would say Del Vecchios. Del Vecchios.
0: Nice. Okay. So and then where else in Asheville? Like if you you know, had friends in town, where would you take them to eat that Roo-bar. wasn't Roo-bar-
2: rhubarb? Um, uh, you know, for fancy food, it's always going to be Cucina 24. Those guys kill it. Um, their tasty menu is a great deal. Uh, their fresh pasta is great. There's anything that comes out of that wood fire oven I love. Uh, if it's a Sunday night, I would say Burger Gang at Broadway's. Um, best burgers in town you can only get them there on sundays chris cox kills it Uh, he's a great friend of mine he went with me to atlanta burger Uh, gang burger gang yeah so it used to be the montford pull-up over in montford which was like a bodega
1: there's
2: there i mean yeah people it didn't really it didn't really work for Asheville because it freaked people out okay they're like there's nowhere to sit what am i supposed to do it's like yo go pop the trunk on your car buy a buy a sun kiss from the (laughs) convenience store side and sit out in your car and eat a good burger.
1: So is it like right next to Nine Mile? Is it, it on that was. little trip? It's okay. no longer no there, there anymore. anymore. Okay, where is it now?
2: It's only at Broadway's on Sunday. And then Broadway's. Shakey's oh. on Tuesday for Booty Tuesdays. Um, so he does the pop-up Sunday and Tuesday. And it's the best burger in town, in my opinion.
1: Shakey's right on the river.
2: Shakey's right on the river. It does burgers tonight. Tuesday nights, Booty Tuesdays.
1: Eye contact, boo.
2: Um, <laughs> okay. So... I love what he does. Uh, He's a great friend. What's Uh, his name? Chris Cox. Chris Cox, cool. Burger Boy. I mean, his (laughs) name's Chris Cox, but we all call him Burger Boy. I mean, we had everybody at Atlanta Food & Wine call him Burger Boy. Yeah. I came around the corner during my event, and I was like, how's it going, Chris? And everybody looked at me, and they go, Chris, I thought this was Berg. And I was like, (laughs) yeah. Or ASAP Berg. ASAP. (laughs) Um, You know, so there... uh, I don't want to give out too many of my secrets. Uh, Over Easy Cafe for breakfast. Okay. Um, Taqueria Munoz for some good, straight-up, authentic tacos. Taqueria mm. Munoz. A Taste of El Salvador for pupusa, for pupusas. Um, I, think those, uh, I like Homegrown for some quick food, quick, good food. I like that a lot. Cool. I think those are up there on our list of places we eat. Right. On. Yeah. I think
1: I think that's more than enough. Right. And uh my next question is things you would have people do if they were down let's say for a weekend. Right? Like where do they like is the Biltmore on your list? I've it, never been to the Biltmore. There you go. Right? So I don't know. So no, it's not on your list. <laughs> I, the I answer mean, is no. Where would you send them? Like would you send them to uh Pisgah National Forest? Would you send them to Weaverville, would you say, just stay in downtown? I think subjective.
2: Exactly. You know? uh, I, ju- I would just eat my way through Asheville, personally. <laughs> Love it. I would eat a lot of food. That's what I'm we like, do usually when we travel, is we like to eat a lot. Yeah. We um, didn't leave
1: downtown the first three trips.
2: Right. Um, or West,
1: West Asheville, also Montford, but that's it.
2: For us, you know, uh, I always joke and say I'm a caveman. When I'm not at work, I'm at my house. Mm-hmm. I like my house. It's comfortable. My garden's there. I was gonna. Uh, I wanted to ask about that.
0: Yeah, like so. What are you doing when you're not at work?
2: Um, I garden. uh, I run my side business. What's your side business? I sell uh, '80s and '90s clothes. Uh, So
0: so give like what's an example of something you
2: sell? Starter, starter stuff. Old Levi's. Those mom (laughs) jeans. I got a lot of them. Mom jeans.
0: Ooh, the mom jeans are in. Yeah, Uh,
2: (laughs) Nike shoes. old concert tees, uh, stuff like that. Um, Did you watch mid-90s? Because
1: that was like... I, it's
2: on my watch list on oh, Amazon Prime. my I goodness, I haven't watched dude. it.
1: It's, it's a dream. It's a fashion dream. It's yeah. just so crazy. This, some of the stuff, I'm like, oh, my God, I remember everything that they're wearing and wore it. It was so
2: Right, weird. and now uh, now those guys, we have money.
1: And see, yeah. like that's
2: where retail's getting screwed up because a lot of us didn't have money growing up. And you see people buying all this old stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
2: Like, why would I buy a new T-shirt when I could have a T-shirt that, like, I really wanted when I was a kid but I couldn't get? And you're seeing a lot of that happening with my generation of people, I feel like. They're yeah. going back to their childhood. I think the mid-'90s is a huge homage to that happening. Um, but I see that happening more and more of people. You see 35-year-old men wearing Nikes all the time now, you know? And my dad wore Nikes growing up. And when my dad was 35, he had four kids. I was 13 years old, you know. Stuff was different then. Yeah. There's this, like, uh, there was a book about it a long time ago, Rejuvenile. You know, these people that are just trying to tap back into their childhood.
1: Interesting.
2: I think that's huge, especially in fashion right now.
1: Yeah. No so, no argument. I agree.
2: Um, I skateboard. I ride a bike. I hang out with my wife and dog. Um guess that's about it. We go out to eat. I like to fish. Fly fish? Yes. Do you still
1: whip uh, Vince Van Gogh when you go?
2: Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you don't run. Sometimes I get stuck in, you know, <laughs> out somewhere. It's happened before. Um, but yeah, I like to fly fish a lot. Skateboard. Um,
1: We've heard weird things about the... At like French broad, like you wouldn't catch and eat I don't something. fish in the French broad. So you're going upstream? Like so um, I've not gone fishing yet. I
2: am the, you know, a fisherman don't want to give up yeah, his I spots. I fish in the western North Carolina area <laughs> uh, in any stream that I can stand in. Okay. I will say that. Cool. I like to go, I'll, I'll say that. I, I'll go to parts of Reams Creek. That's my local fishing spot. Like cool. if I, if I get out of work at eight and I got another hour and a half of sunlight, I'll go to Reams Creek in Weaverville.
1: Cool. We uh, we just walked around the Beaver Lake, yeah, yeah, which is yeah. here, and I was like, "Look at the size of that fish!" And I imagine it's all like seeded, you know, with fish or not. But I don't those know. things are. There were a couple of. got some big gigantic. bass. Yeah, they got
2: some real big bass. I've gone out with a buddy uh, into that lake a couple times, and they got some pretty big bass in there. Whoa.
1: And turtles, and turtles, was, and ducks. And turtles we saw and ducks.
0: more animals there than like we have ever seen in like any sort of just random I, walk. I
1: thought like. I was on in a zoo.
2: You'll see turkeys yeah. over here. You're ready for that? Oh, I can't
1: wait. I'm waiting on our first bear. Too. We haven't seen a bear yet. We're waiting on that. That'll be weird. I think. I hear they're like dogs, but just kind of scarier. Oh no, they ain't like dogs. I mean, I, what are they like?
2: I mean, they're big. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bear, <laughs> yo. I mean, yeah. don't mess with a ba- bear like No, 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 no. No, and and they're blacks down here. Mm-hmm. You fight a black. I don't know if you know about bear safety, Talk but to if me. you get attacked, you got to fight a bear, a black bear.
1: Okay. Cuz that amazing. thing ain't gonna stop. Oh, word.
2: Yeah. So browns, you can like you can get big, you can play dead. They'll usually like like you can curl up in the fetal position, they'll leave you around But black bears, you got to fight. Oh, jeez.
0: See, I ever heard that black bears versus grizzly bears like you know black bears are nothing compared to well, that in size. in size
2: correct but ah. but black bears will attack more than grizzly bears will
0: wow so what do you do when you see a bear this get is big. my question okay
2: get big put your hands above your head make, make noise. noise a little bit not like you don't want to start like banging pots and stuff away right away i okay. mean I, I think go has... away bear get away bear <laughs> you don't want nothing over here put if you're like if you have something put it in between you and the bear
1: so it'll investigate that before right. it attacks you.
2: Or like when I would see bears when I was riding bike, I would always take my bike and lift it over my head because uh, the bi- bear can't distinguish between you and the bike. And So if the bike over your head makes you taller than the bear, bear want. bear just wants to go eat berries and hang out in the woods. man. Yeah, man. That's what bears want to do, you know? Uh, but yeah.
1: And then if you see a cub, I imagine that's just like if moms If you see a nearby, cub, you better, get, you get better
2: make sure there's nothing behind you yeah. first and foremost. Because if mom's behind you and you in between that, that's a bad place to be. That's a bad place to be. Yeah, and even even bears that get to be a year, two years, if you see them, know that mom's definitely close by. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're definitely venturing out on their own, but you see four bears that are like teens. You better believe mom's within two hundred yards. You know, and they
1: run thirty miles an hour.
2: Oh yeah, they fast. Yeah, sick. Yeah.
1: So when you go camping, do you have, like, bear food bags and stuff like that? Oh, we have
2: bear spray. Um, we'll hang our, our food. We always hang the food in a tree. Mm-hmm. We got a big old rope we take with us. Mm-hmm. Walk, you know, a couple hundred yards from the campsite. Latch hang your food up in a tree.
1: What do you do? So the one thing that's never been clear about, like, when you're cooking, you just also cook not where you're sleeping?
2: Yeah, I mean, but that's a lot more, like that camping, mm-hmm. you know, for sure. You don't want to cook where you're going to sleep. But like if you're car camping, that's where the fire pit is. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to cook where you sleep. Yeah.
1: Cool. And you got Vincent Van Gogh as a defense mechanism. For if sure. were to get real. For sure. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, Sarah, I think are we at that point now where we get close to asking about the future?
0: Yes. <laughs> the dreaded future. No, it's not. The exciting future. The exciting yeah. future. So, like, what, what would, what's in store for you? What's on your mind? You said Back Top Chef. Back twenty
1: uh, 2019.
2: I mean, yeah, I would like to get on Top Chef, but mm-hmm. I'm not, like, banking on it. Right. Uh, you know, keep working at Rhubarb. Uh, continue to make Rhubarb uh, the best kitchen we can make it in Nashville. Try what to make
0: dishes it. are you working on right now?
2: Um... We're we're just working on transitioning into spring vegetables. And as stuff comes, I...
0: That's funny. I'm more... Spring vegetables now.
2: Yeah. Spring and and summer, Summer. you know, uh, I I suppose you're right. We're on summer vegetables now, not spring vegetables. Uh, Well, I mean,
0: I ask because, like, I know some places, especially in New York, like spring now is either very, very short or doesn't come until June. So that could be... I feel like we did have a short
2: spring. um, Waiting for tomatoes to come in. Um, I am definitely a big fan of squashes, zucchinis I'm ready to start getting more wild forage mushrooms we've only had one chicken of the woods come in um, but I'm much more of a I'll conceptualize for events and things like that but mm-hmm. other stuff is more just, I like it like to come naturally. Like One of the dishes I served in Atlanta was because of a snack that I made on the line because I was hungry. I took strawberry brioche. I smeared butter on it. We had the first radishes of spring. I threw radish on it, a little bit of our goat cheese, and then I drizzled ramp oil on it. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so good. We could make a bite out of this. And so I did. Mm-hmm. You know, I made a ramp goat cheese, smeared it on strawberry brioche pickled strawberries, shaved radishes. And all that came from me making the butt piece of brioche a snack because I wanted to keep moving. Mm-hmm. And I prefer to sort of make dishes that way. Lunch menu is a little bit, uh, a little bit easier to conceptualize because there's certain pockets you have to fill where I feel like the dinner menu allows you a lot more room to play. Like mm-hmm. we know we're going to have steak, but what goes with it? It doesn't really matter, mm-hmm. you know? Right. Um, you want to have something similar to a potato with steak generally. Um, we did a turnip gratin for a while instead of yeah, a potato gratin. Yeah, that, was, that mm-hmm. was good. Um, you mm-hmm. know, so you want to have something along those lines, but I feel like there's more room to play there. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, you know, on the brunch menu, I know that I want to have a couple salads and a couple of this, and so a lot of that comes a little bit more. I love banh mi, so I knew that we were going to do a banh mi. Um, in the summertime, we do a beef bacon BLT, which is one of my favorite. Uh, tomato season comes around. We'll also do tomato pies, which is another southern favorite of mine. Yes. Um, I'm thinking of a cheeseless pizza, but that can't be it. It's, it's got like cheese. A- it's attraction. like a deep yeah. dish. It's more like a southern version of deep dish pie.
0: It's got like, uh, isn't it like a, like a quiche on it, but not as, not eggy? No, I would say,
2: I would say, I would honestly commit, call it the southern deep dish pie.
0: Okay. To
2: be, I mean, every recipe I've ever made has garlic and cheese in it. And it's tomatoes and some mayonnaise.
0: Because my yeah some other
2: stuff, we do half uh, half roasted, half raw tomatoes for our for ours. So half our tomatoes are roasted, half our tomatoes are raw. Um, we do some confit garlic, uh, Grana Padano, Duke's mayonnaise, <laughs> and uh, that's the
0: mayonnaise of North Carolina.
2: Which it's the mayonnaise of the South
0: of the South. Wow. Okay.
2: Get that Hellman's out of here. Uh, yeah, I mean, we won't take it in our restaurant. You will only find Duke's Manny's in our restaurant. If what I go to for you, ketchup? Whatever.
1: whatever. Wow, okay. I
2: mean, I really like house-made ketchup, but people have such a preconceived notion of what ketchup is supposed to yeah. taste like that it Times. never goes over well. No. Vivian Howard, uh, she has a restaurant called Boiler Room. I, I, I worked for her out in Kingston for a while. Their house-made ketchup is amazing. If she sold that thing by the bottle, that would be my ketchup. Wow. Um, but people, they want hunt. They, they, we have a very specific idea of what things are supposed to taste like. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Ketchup is ketchup, and there's no. But like, we took whole grain mustard and mm. pureed it into some toxic-looking yellow thing. <laughs> you know, and so I don't, I don't really know. Like, I think you're you're comparing the best of a lousy lot. You know, mm. whereas like you have gray poupon, yeah, I, I think that there's Dijons and stuff like that that definitely have you know, that good stuff, but yeah. I don't know. Ubiquity. We don't eat, I mean, and we, we buy yellow mustard because some people want it on their bur- burgers and yeah. stuff like that, but I mean, we hardly go through it. Most yeah. people want to eat good mustard right. nowadays.
1: All right, so if there's a way that Sarah and I can support you or our listening audience to help make something real, like what would those things be? Like what, what is coming up? What, what are you dreaming about?
2: Kids. Kids. <laughs> Um, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty comfortable with where I'm at in my career-wise. Uh, I feel like I'm in a good spot. My I, my next move for a career is going to be a big one. Yeah. You know, I'm CDC of John Fleur's Restaurant. I mean, there's not – that's a big deal. Yeah. Like, and I'm very happy with that position. Um, and I feel like the next move from there would be into our own restaurant or mm-hmm. – to like Top Chef or something like that mm-hmm. and I don't see any of those in the near future unless there's someone listening who wants to give me a bunch of money.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, but <laughs> that's you, not... Feel
2: free to look mm-hmm. me up on Instagram. Uh, get at me. Yeah, We've and, got ideas. And we will... Southern Ramen. Southern Ramen. Sarah will come. That's it.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> we already have
2: our first customer. First customer. Um, but you know, I mean... I just want to keep working. I want to get to the point where, uh, you know, uh, I'm cooking a majority of my food at Rhubarb. Uh, uh, Food that I help guide, I guess, Mm -hmm. would be a better thing. You know, because I want all of my cooks to be creative and have a say in the menu. And that's one thing. So it's more of like I want to be able to guide that Rhubarb menu to where we want it to be.
1: And so just as as an add-on, I guess, I would say if and when you go to Rhubarb because of this podcast, I would either call ahead or ask if the that kind of chef's
2: corner. Chef's, bars, chef's uh, bar first come, first serve.
1: Okay, so yeah, there you go. Yeah, that,
0: that is the spot.
1: Because we be. we sat back there. It yeah. was our third time in Rhubarb or so, and we – it was just aw- – I mean, for me at least, it was awesome. I think that the team that you have back there are just – it's – you know, it's one thing to be able to put out good food. It's a, I, f- I feel it's another thing to be able to put out good food and have people who are back there that have charisma and personality yeah. and are able to, like, it was just fun for us. And we had yeah. real conversations fun with for the them. team. And I think that's crazy. Like, I, I don't know. I just It seems like so much to ask to have a chef that's good and like, or a team that's good and is also able to bullshit with me, um, and, and it they takes did it some time really well.
2: for sure for those people. You know, uh, not everybody walks in like, you know. When we get new people, sometimes it takes. Well, and I'll, you know, I'll go stand down next to them. Did you say hello to that person? You mm-hmm. know, did you talk to them? Have you greeted the guest? Like, yeah. that's part of the experience, and that's what we're in the business of doing. We're not in the business of feeding people. Yeah, we're in the business of creating experiences and giving you something that you probably can't replicate i mean Definitely oyster can't. mushrooms from harvest to harvest are going to taste a little bit different for sure so that first quail you had probably tasted a little bit different than the second one mm-hmm. you know uh and creating experiences and making sure our guests have the best time is what we are in the business of doing mm-hmm. And those people that I mentioned before, David Chang, Danny Meyer, Emeril Lagasse, those guys are all pros at doing that. You yeah. go into those restaurants and you are getting more than a meal. And that's what it's about. We're not just in the business of feeding people. And that's like why I also think the chef's bar is so amazing. It's mm-hmm. our chef's table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Some restaurants have a fancy chef's table and you have to know somebody or you have to pay an exuberant amount of money to get in there. First comes, first serve. You can talk to the people that are cooking your food. They can yeah. tell you what farms it's coming from, where they're from. Maybe you're both from Long Island, and Travis will have a meltdown and talk to you for hours, yeah. which seems to happen like More three often. times a week. Yeah. We have these people from Long Island come in. You're from Long Island? I'm from Long Island too, bro. <laughs> it just comes out. And he, I mean, he gets so excited, oh, and sure. they'll chop it up about neighborhoods and like. Oh, you're you from know, the North had, Shore? You're
1: from the North Shore?
2: <laughs> I had, so my mentor Eric, uh, some people that we mutually knew from Alaska came in and sat at the chef's bar. And I was like, Eric was just here. They were like, no. And I was like, yeah, Eric was here a week ago. I was feeding him. And, like, that, I, they didn't come in and be like, Eric sent me here. Like, through conversation I had with them at the chef's bar, discovered that I knew their son. Yeah. And their son got married, and their reception was at Eric's restaurant. Whoa. And it was just like, whoa. Wow. You know, like you get to have these experiences yes. and you get to talk to people and uh, we have a great team that delivers on that. We have a great front of house staff that is super knowledgeable at the food, super knowledgeable at our drinks and wine. Um, and I think we we do a good job of delivering that at rhubarb, and that's what I want to continue to do.
1: Now one last question. Yeah. And I meant to probably ask this earlier, is if I were looking to get into just kind of like step one of being a better home cook? Yeah. What kind of stuff might I need or what I consider? Is it a book? Is it a, Um, is it a saute pan? I think uh,
2: buy books that talk more in theory. Uh, I think Thomas, I think Thomas Keller's ad hoc is a great book for people. Uh, He has recipes as well as uh, instructions about technique, how to make a chicken stock, how to break down a chicken. The three or four different ways you can break down a chicken. Uh, he tells you the science behind resting your meat. Uh, I think that is a great cookbook uh, to get some good basic recipes for at home, as well as uh, learning some technique and some theory that you can apply to how you can be more efficient in the kitchen and use everything from your products, you mm-hmm. know? you get a chicken you make chicken salad you also have the ingredients for chicken stock there's no reason you shouldn't make chicken stock because most likely you'll need some stock mm-hmm. you know if you're cooking regularly at least yeah. um and that stuff they sell in the store ain't stock it's something else i don't know what it is but it's not stock um i think that's a great book you need a good chef's knife that's it a chef's knife and a good spoon wooden spoons S- wooden spoons. oh my god I'm a sucker for a wooden spoon. Just, I'm a sucker just, for a spoon. I think most chefs are suckers for spoons. And a good knife. And, and uh, take care of your knife. Uh, learn how to sharpen it. Yeah. Go to a sharpener and have them explain to you what you're doing wrong with your knife and how you can keep your edge better. Yeah. Um, I think those are the two main tools. Do you have a geeked out knife brand that you absolutely love? Uh... Yeah, for sure. Metal Monkey Knives out of Australia. Toby is a custom knife maker who makes incredible knives. Uh, He's made my two main kitchen... uh, Kitchen uh, Santoku for my vegetables and a custom-designed butchery knife for me that is... It's not quite a bony knife and it's not quite... Uh, like a Nakiri knife. It's, it's, it's a hybrid. I designed it myself. It's stiff, but flexible when I need it to be. Wow. And, uh, metal monkey knives out of <laughs> Australia. They're about, expensive. Yeah. I'm going to say like uh, version
1: 1.0, is it just like Victorinox or something?
2: Uh, you know, if you're going to get you, any knife can be, you can go to, you can go to red apple. So this is what I have several kitchen knives from your local Asian grocery store. Mm. They cost like $5, and they're not really good steel. But if you want to keep them sharp, you got to learn how to sharpen a knife. Mm-hmm. And those are great knives. you just got to take care of it. I love those a lot. They're Kiwi. Kiwi is the brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are great knives. If you're looking to spend a little bit more, you know, a, uh, a Wusthof mm-hmm. is pretty popular, um, a Henkel. But don't buy a set of knives. Right. Go in and price out how much a Henkel set of knives with a block cost and then spend that much money on one chef's knife. Wow. That chef's knife will last you forever. Right. If you take care of it. Yeah. It'll stay sharp forever if you take care of it. Spend two hundred dollars, spend hundred and fifty bucks on a chef's knife. It's worth it. Yeah. You want to slice through tomatoes like butter, spend $150 on a chef's knife. Or spend four ninety nine on a chef's knife at the Asian grocery store and spend $45 on a sharpening stone mm-hmm. and sharpen it regularly. Right. But if you want something that's going to hold an edge for a long time, go spend $150. Cool.
1: Dang. Cast iron, pots, pans. Sure. And different,
2: whatever. I mean, cast irons, you know, uh, if you take care of them, they'll take care of you. Same thing. Buy a good one. Um, I mean, you just don't want to buy... I don't like, like, the new hybridized stuff. Buy just a regular old cast iron paint. Mm-hmm. It don't need to have, like... It don't need to be green on the outside. That's not <laughs> cast iron. Yeah, Cast iron should be black, yes. you know? Um, don't worry about how things look. Worry about how they perform for you, you right. know? Love it.
0: Well, awesome. yeah. well, we're running out of time, I think. So we'll wrap up by asking you, where can people find you on the internet?
2: Uh, I don't know the best way to, t- uh, on, on Instagram, uh, my Instagram is bl- uh, at black underscore squad, but you replace the A's with X's.
0: We'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> okay.
2: Yeah. It's a little hard, but it's because I have all black animals and they follow me around everywhere. That's my squad. Love it. So two dogs and a cat, all black. You know, that's how it came to And a
0: few black bears occasionally.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Yeah, and we'll link to that both on Instagram and our website, make it a little bit easier. Anything? Right on. That was an episode. Cool. Thanks for being here. Yeah, of course. Loved it. And that was our interview with Derek Harry, the chef de cuisine at Rhubarb, one of our absolute favorite restaurants in downtown Asheville. Honestly, one of our favorite family of restaurants. We love the Rue, we love Rhubarb, and we love Benny. Benny. Benny, not Benet. All owned by the same restaurateur. You heard him mention a couple times, John. Um, But I... Honestly, I loved that as our first kind of sneak peek into the restaurant industry here in Asheville. It's clearly such a big part of the culture and of the community down here. I feel grateful that Derek was our first step into this world.
0: Yeah, and I am honestly so excited to try all of the places that he recommended, uh, as well as looking forward to this Southern Ramen spot coming up.
1: Yeah, let's speak it into reality. Uh, We will be there on launch day when that place exists. And so also there's clearly a lot that was mentioned in the podcast. If uh, you would like links to any of the things that he referenced, his Instagram account, for example, where A's or X's, we have that all linked on our website, com slash 006, which will be this episode with Derek Harry
0: And if you like this podcast, uh, don't forget to follow us on Instagram. We are now also on Facebook as of last week. And uh, give us a shout out on the podcast page. We would love to have your recommendations on who you think we should interview next. It can be yourself or someone that you know.
1: And really appreciate. It means more than you think it does if you take the minute to write a small review on Apple Podcasts. We have at least one in there right now, and it makes our heart melt when you have nice things to say. But we're working hard here. We look forward to the next couple podcasts. We have a couple in for the first time. We have a couple uh, scheduled and ready to be published in the weeks ahead. Um, And I I imagine that list is just going to start growing and get even more exciting. Uh, But think wedding stuff and photography. I don't want to give too many secrets, uh, but next week should be great as well. That's a wrap. All right. Take it away, Commonwealth Choir.
2: High five.